Good morning. Let's uh, go before the Lord in prayer and then we'll open up His Word. Oh, praise Your name. Jesus, Messiah, the King above all kings, omnipotent, omnipresent, imminent here in our life and yet transcendent above us. Lord, we don't deserve to worship You. And yet You love us. You set Your Son. How deep the Father's love for us. Lord, help us to recognize who You are and live a life of worship. In Your name we pray. Amen. The question for you this morning, what is the appropriate posture for worship? Is it hands up, hands on the side, hands in the pocket, arms around? Or does God care more about your heart? Worship isn't just something we do when we sing. It's something that we live out every single day. So my question again is what is your, your posture in worship? How do you see God? How do you worship God? Does it affect every area of your life? Or is God just something you come to check in on on Sundays? Do you see Him as holy and transcendent, but also close and intimate? How do you view God? And how do you worship? Today, we're going to be looking at a unique story. Uh, and it's a unique story because it's a kind of confusing story at the beginning. And in fact, if you go to a lot of the atheist chat rooms, they'll point to this and say, that's why I'm an atheist. And, but yet it points out how God is transcendent. But then when we look at the end of the story, we'll see how God is imminent and with us. And that David recognized who God truly was and his responsibility to worship before the Lord. So in this Baptist Church here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, we're going to be talking about dancing this morning. It's going to be good. Before we get to that, uh, we're going to bring you back on the timeline. We've been going through this series starting in Genesis called Foundations, and we've been kind of taking chunks, and we just finished the journey, which was the chunk that the Israelites left Egypt and headed into the Promised Land, and now we're in Kings and Kingdoms, uh, where uh, Pastor John was talking, well, actually, um, uh, oh wow, I'm blanking on our uh, Larry. Hi, sorry, he's not. I couldn't look at him because he's he's preaching at Brian's church. Larry High started off this part of the series talking about Saul, and then Pastor John introduced us to David this week. And I want to give you, bring you kind of uh, the timeline of David to bring us up to where we're at in the story, since we're kind of going fast through the story. So David was born to Jesse from the tribe of Judah. If you remember from quite a few weeks back, uh, he was his great grandmother was Ruth. We told a story about Ruth for Christmas. His great great grandma was Rahab. So we talked about that in Judges. Um, he was the youngest of eight sons. He was appointed king by Samuel. Uh, we don't know how old he was. Many guess probably that 10 to 15 year old range. He killed Goliath, as Pastor John mentioned, probably in his teen years. Then he was a musician for King Saul playing the harp. And then he fled as Saul tried to have him killed for years, being the anointed king of Israel, and yet Saul still on the throne. 
Now, when we get into the book of 2 Samuel, we're going to start in chapter 6, but I want to kind of bring you up to speed of what's happened so far. So in chapter 1, Saul dies, and David, rather than rejoicing, mourns because the appointed of the Lord has died, and Jonathan, his dear friend, passed away as well. Chapter 2, David's anointed king over Judah. That's the southern part of Israel. And when he was 30 years old, and he reigned in Judah for seven years. Now Saul's general in the north made Ithbosheth, uh, Saul's son, the king of the northern tribes. Chapter 3, we see the war between the house of Saul and the house of David continued. David continued to gain strength and support, and Saul's line was getting weaker. Eventually, Saul's general defects to David's side. But David's general is mad because that general had killed his brother. And so David's general murders Saul's general. And David again mourns. Ishbosheth, the king of the northern tribes, Saul's son, is then murdered. And David again mourns. In chapter 5, the elders anoint David as king over all of Israel. He had been king over Judah for 7.5 years, so he was around 37 and a half years old. He defeated the Philistines and captured Jerusalem, where he would rule all of Israel for another 33 years. All right, we're caught up. So now let's dive in. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to 2 Samuel 6. It'll also be there on the screen. If you're watching at home, it'll be there on the screen. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala and Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. So here's David has just become king. He's in Jerusalem, and he gets together these young men, probably referencing a military force, but we can know from First Chronicles probably also included the civil and religious Leaders And they go to Bala in Judah. Now that is probably the name that was given by the Canaanites. Uh, Baal, Baal is their god. So this is uh, the god of Judah, the gods of Judah. They changed the name that the Israelites did, but it's interchangeable. It's called both things. Um, it's called Kiriath-Jerim, which means city of forest. So David went with his men to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. So if you're wondering what the ark is, hopefully uh, your only impression of the ark isn't from Indiana Jones. And uh, by the way, David found it first. Um, and <clears throat> so what is this ark? Well, this ark here in the, in the passage says it's called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who's enthroned between the cherubim and the ark. The ark was a symbol of God's presence, both to the nation of Israel and to their enemies. Uh, there's an a artist's rendering of it. Um, someone said, looked at the description, said this is something, it looks something like this. In the words of John Woodhouse, the ark was a gold-plated wooden box, approximately three feet, nine inches long, by two feet, three inches, both high and wide. It had been made in the days of Moses according to God's instructions. It was fitted with gold rings through which the gold-plated wooden poles were placed by which it was to be carried. So you can see the rings there and the, the pole that went through it. Um, on top of the ark was a pure gold cover with a solid cherub at each end. Inside the ark were stone tablets which were engraved with the words of the Ten Commandments, beginning, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So the ark, it represented a covenant between the Lord and Israel. God's promise to be their God and their obligation to be His people. 
In the ark, God represented himself to Israel. So the neglect of the ark by Saul was an expression of Saul's failure to fear, serve, obey, and follow the Lord. And so um, it was a symbol of God's presence. As they would go into battle and take the ark of the covenant, it was a symbol that God was with them. Now, how did it end up in Kiriath-Jerim? Well, if you go back and then you're reading as you're reading through 1 Samuel, you know that the ark was captured by the Philistines before uh, Saul became king. And after they captured it, they, they brought it into town and they had this, this god that they worshipped and, and they put the ark there and their, their idol fell. They're like, what in the world? And then it fell and broke. And what in the world? And then everybody got tumors and they're like, we don't want this. They sent it to another town and everybody in that town got tumors and they're like, we need to do something. So they said, let's put together a new cart. And so they build a new cart and uh, they put the ark on the cart and they find two uh Two cows that they haven't, they're, they have little calves and they haven't had any yokes on them before. And they put golden tumors, which is a weird, weird thing, but like, we're getting tumors, so let's make golden tumors and send it to Israel. And they say, hey, cart, if you end up in Israel, well, no, it was the God of Israel's doing it. And they kick the cows and they go and they go to Israel. They're like, okay, that's who was doing it to it. So that's a short summary. Um, so that, that was after seven months they did this. And the ark ended up at Kiriath Jerim and remained there for 20 years. So let's, let's fast forward. Verse 3. So David gathers the people, 30,000 people. He sends people, go get the ark. This is great. I'm king in Israel. Let's have the ark come back to Jerusalem, to the city of God. We're going to do this. Verse 3. They set the ark of God on a new cart. And brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Was this supposed to be on a cart? Uh, can you go back to the picture? What, what, what were those uh, those ring things there? What were they for? To, to to put to put the rod through. What were you supposed to carry it on? The, the rod. What what did the Philistines do? They put it on a cart. They built a new cart. So the Israelites go, hey, let's build a new cart and bring it to Israel. Okay, if you're just reading it, you're like, oh, you don't notice anything. But if you're, if you're reading and thinking through it, you're like, uh-oh. Um, first warning, first, first warning that's, that's not how it's supposed to be transferred. In fact, God gave really very specific instructions of how the ark was to move. In Numbers 4, and number 7, Exodus 25, Deuteronomy 10, it was to be covered by several layers of covering to cover it up as it traveled. There were the two rings on each side that only priests were supposed to carry it. Levites were supposed to be the ones that carried it by the poles. And it says in Numbers 4, 15, that after the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, they must not touch the holy things lest they die. Carry it by the poles, don't touch it, or you're going to die. In Numbers 4.20 it said they shall not go in and look at the holy things even for a moment lest they die. And we know early in 1 Samuel that 70 people did this and died. So you can't touch it, you can't look at it. And in this description of what they're doing, they built a new cart. They didn't cover it, they didn't have priests carry it, they didn't do what they're supposed to do. So Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart, verse 4, with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. 
David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, cymbals. Here's the second one. You got this guy Uzzah and Ahio. Now they're sons of Abinadab. Abinadab's son Eleazar was the one who had put, been put in control of this in the first place. We don't know if they're Levite, if they're priests, but the, the text seems to to imply in First Chronicles that the first time that they didn't do it right, they didn't have Levitical priests. So while the ark is being slowly guided towards Jerusalem, there's all this stuff going on. David and all of Israel, they're worshiping. They have all the bands out, all the best musicians. They're singing, they're dancing, they're so excited. The ark is coming to Jerusalem. This is the most momentous time in probably most of the people who are there gathering. This is the, the most momentous time in their history, in their entire lives. They're excited. It symbolizes that God's presence is coming to be with them. Verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacom, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Can you picture this moment? I think sometimes we're familiar with stories. We don't notice what's going on. The whole nation's gathered. The bands are playing. People are singing. All of a sudden... The oxen stumbles and Uzzah, out of reflex, dead. How would you experience that when you're in the congregation? What, what does this mean? Why is God judging us in this moment? Wondering what to think. When we are on vacation, we went to... Uh, the show, Pirates Voyage and Dinner Show or something. It is amazing. It's really cool if you ever get a chance to go. Super expensive, so you can go to one of those timeshare presentations and get free tickets, even though it's like three hours long and they pressure you. It's worth it. Um, small tip. They really pressure you, though. You just say, no, no, I don't want to spend a bajillion dollars for the rest of my year. Um, and uh, anyways, but... This fantastic gymnastics, and they're flipping, and they're landing in the water, and there's a seal, and there's otters, all this cool stuff, and they have professional gymnasts doing this stuff, and they're flying through the air, and in the middle of the show, we were there last time, they, they have one part where there's two huge trampolines, and they have the normal people going up and down, but then they have these people who are really good acrobats that like fly up like 40 feet in the air and land on the other one, and it's crazy, and he missed the jump, and he went too far, and he landed on his neck, and Everything stopped. And the music stopped, and the announcer came on. They said he's okay, he can move stuff, but we have to call the paramedics. And the paramedics had to come in, and they had to climb the ropes, like the, the pirate ship ropes, to get up to where he was. And, you know, this whole time, and you're sitting there, and you're like, okay, what do I do? Like, I have a dinner. Is it appropriate to eat dinner while someone is... And you're like wondering, what do I do? And then the rest of the show, you're like... Am I allowed to enjoy this? And you're thinking about it. In the next couple of days, you're, you're checking in to find out, is there anything on the news? Is this guy okay? And when he went out, they, he put his thumbs up and everything, so he wasn't paralyzed. But, but still, it was like super scary. And, and you just, you're at this really momentous, fun moment, and then all of a sudden, everything just crashes. And here's the Israelites. It's the, the best moment of many of their lives. And David is super excited. The ark is coming to Jerusalem. And then, 
And so David's response is, is anger. How could God do this? But God is holy. And he's just and he's true to his word. And he said, if you touch it, you cannot touch this because my presence is there. And if you touch it, you will die. We have to recognize the holiness of God. R.C. Sproul says this, Uzzah's mistake was thinking that his hand was cleaner than the dirt. So he took things into his own hands. John Woodhouse uh, explained it this way. He said, It's difficult for many people to accept that God does not have to explain himself to us. He is not answerable to us. The reason for his actions are often hidden from us. See Deuteronomy 20, 29, 29. He's not obliged to win our approval. Our reaction to what happened to Uzzah, like the reaction of those who were there, is an excellent indication of whether we believe this. Is God just? Is God righteous? Is God holy? And does He keep His word? Verse 8. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to that day the place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid the Lord, uh, afraid of the Lord on that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him to the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. First, we, the, the Hebrew is very similar here. The Lord's anger burns against Uzzah, and then David's anger burns. Now, burns. now it doesn't say that his anger is aimed at the Lord, but rather it seems like it's aimed at the situation. Joyce Baldwin puts it this way, From David's point of view, the death of Uzzah under these circumstances was not only a tragedy for the family of Abinadab, but also a colossal loss of face for the king. And so he names the place Perez Uzzah, the Lord break out on Uzzah. Have you ever been in charge of people and had something happen to them that you, you felt really bad um, this last weekend, we, we went yesterday or went Friday night to stay at my sister's house to celebrate Christmas, and uh, we brought our dog. And our dog is potty trained, but this is the first time we've ever taken him to someone else's house. And the first thing he did when he walked in the door was found a spot and marked his territory. And I was, and my anger burned, <laughs> and I could not believe that my idiot dog did that. The rest of the time, I'm like holding my dog and not letting him go anywhere because I'm worried because I feel responsible for my dog in that house and for their carpet, and I was mad. Well, here David has to feel responsible and go, I caused this. I called Uzzah to do this. I told them to do these things. Now, this is the same David that experienced God's consistent protection and provision in his life. He's expressed this tremendous intimacy with the Lord, but he's doubting. How can the ark ever come to me? I'm wondering if he wrote Psalm 24 in this moment. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in this holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And so he leaves the ark with Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Gittite means from Gath. Who else is from Gath? Goliath. Now it's very possible that this person had a Gittite name and that was from the time when, when, when Israel had that land and he's not. It's actually more probable that he's a Levite 
but many commentators think they actually left it in the house of a Philistine. We don't, we don't know that for sure. But just imagine the gravity of this moment. Everything building up to it. How it, you know, they didn't have email back then. They didn't have phones. They couldn't just say, hey Israel, here's a mass email. Come out, you know, to this place. We're going to watch the ark come in. You know, they had to send out emissaries and all these things to get the word out so everybody could come in. And then a failure that David had to feel like. I imagine over the next three months, struggling to, to sleep, tossing and turning. Was I supposed to do that? Was I not supposed to do that? What did I do wrong? What do the people think of me? Do they respect me as a king? Am I truly leading well? I know for me, as we've navigated this pandemic, I've spent many sleepless nights praying and saying, God, I, I, I'm trying to make wise decisions, and would you just guide us? Because I don't know what to do. And, and Dave was probably in that same kind of moment, like not knowing what's next. And I think we can see that he went to the Scriptures because we see that he studied the Scriptures, and we'll see what happens next time. So, fast forward three months. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. David gets the good news. The Lord is blessing the host that was holding this ark. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and fattened a calf. During that time he had been studying, notice the difference. Those who were carrying the ark. He's going to go about it differently. In fact, if you skip ahead to 1 Chronicles, you'll hear a greater description of what happened. 1 Chronicles 15, it's on the screen there. David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. Okay, here's who has to carry it, according to God, according to His Word. And David assembled all the Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. In verses 4 to 12, he gathers all the priests and has them consecrate themselves so they can do things the right way. In verse 12, and David said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves and your brothers so that... You may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for. You need to go through these rituals to become clean so that you can go and get the ark. Listen to David's description of what happened the first time. Because you did not carry it the first time. That's why I think uh, Uzzah and Ohio were not Levites. Because you did not carry it the first time. The Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek Him according to the rule. We were doing this, but we weren't following the word of the Lord. So the priests and Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses had commanded, according to the word of the Lord. God cares about our obedience. He writes His word to give us guidelines of how to live our life. And during this time, because Jesus had not yet come God had not yet given the Holy Spirit to individuals like we have the blessing of doing. 
God was very particular about His presence. And when He describes the Holy of Holies in the temple, it was only the high priest that could go in there, only on the Day of Atonement. There were very specific things that had to be done to approach Him because of His holiness. Verses 16 to 24, David arranged for the singers and musicians to play worship music as the ark was carried, this huge band. Verse 25, so David and the elders in Israel and the commanders of thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant to the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. Because God helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, linen, as were all the Levites who were carrying the ark, and the singers of the Shenaniah, the leader of the music of the singers. And David wore a linen ephod. So all Israel brought the ark of the covenant to the Lord with shouting, the sound of the horn, trumpet, cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. Drums in the Bible, cymbals, boom. That's why we have them up there. And plus they sound good. Anyways, verse 14. Wearing a linen ephod, going back to 2 Samuel 6, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, while he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. Here's David, the king of Israel, the mighty warrior who had killed Goliath, who had killed a hundred Philistines to get the bride price to get Michael his bride. The mighty warrior took off his kingly garments, put on the priestly robes, and was dancing in the streets with all of his might. The might of a man that killed the lion. The might of a man that had killed Goliath. He used all that might to dance before the Lord. When I was in Haiti, I just remember that first service Singing and worshiping and dancing and feeling really awkward because I'm like a ba- I'm a Baptist, you know. You start like, you know, get the arms moving. Okay, I got like a little bit going. Maybe I could sway a little bit. And then by the end, I'm not going to show you what I looked like at the end. But <clears throat> during the tithing time, they they danced up to the tithe and worship and and placed their tithe in the bucket and danced back. And we're singing and I was like, they were worshiping as they as they gave, that this was all an act of worship. And I just, I just found like, man, this is something that I think we are often missing in the American church. I went to a conference with, uh, with one of our members, and, and when they were at the conference, uh, the place they were at, everybody was raising their hands in worship and singing. And they said, Phil, I felt so free to raise my hands in worship. And I'll tell you what, at, at North Park, I don't feel that same freedom because I'm the only one doing it, which they are, but they felt like, other people will, will look at them. I said, you start raising your hand, I bet you other people will start raising their hands too. In the midst of this, um, you know, we, we, we think about what does it look like to worship. I was, I was talking with one of, my, one of our older members at church, and, uh, and she said, I can't wait till I can come back. I don't feel safe to come right now. She said, when I come back, I'm going to be dancing during the worship time. I said, I said, you know what? We're Baptists. You, you, you know the rules. We're not allowed to dance. I was just joking with her. You can dance. I was just joking with her. And she goes, she goes, Pastor Phil, if you and Johnny can wear those jeans and untucked T-shirts, I can dance. <laughs> I said, I said that's, that's, a, that's a good point. Uh, but the point being, David is, is dancing with all of his might before the Lord. He doesn't care what anybody else thinks. He's worshiping his Savior. And he takes away the kingly robes, puts on the priestly garments, and dances in worship. 
Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. David's praising God with all he has. And Michael's going, that's not how you do it. Don't you know who you are? Verse 17, they, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in this place inside the tent. And David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread and a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their home. So it says there David made the sacrifice, but most likely what that means is David had the Levites make the sacrifice, so he's organizing it. Uh, just one of the commentators explains what's going on here just, just to help us understand. The peace offerings or fellowship offerings, unlike the burnt offerings, were not consumed on the altar or used to provide food for the priest. Instead, Moses returned to the offer, Leviticus 6, who used the meat for a communal feast as part of the rejoicing. But David also blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts, claiming for them the blessing which the Lord had pronounced on his covenant people before distributing food to all. So they are bringing the right sacrifices, bringing the right things to offer, and then David is also blessing them in response. Verse 20, When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Notice the sarcasm. Distinguished himself. Going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Have you ever come home from a really good day or a really good retreat or something, and you're just, you're just super happy. It's like, this is the best day ever. And then you come home, and your wife criticizes you and just, just totally ruins your day. Yeah, me neither. You know, so. but, but David returned to his home. He's, he's full of joy. He's so excited about what God has done. He's on this spiritual high. And, and, and Michael, listen to her sarcasm. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Going around half naked, full view of the slave girls and the servants as any vulgar fellow would. Was David half naked? No. He was wearing priestly garments, the, the linen ephod. Was he dancing for the slave girls of his servants? No. He was dancing before the Lord. Was he dancing in the, as a vulgar fellow? No, he was setting an example for the nation of Israel what it meant to worship God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. Why does she make these accusations? Well, her father, King Saul, was a different kind of king. The king is supposed to be set apart. Wear his royal stuff. Show his people that he's the ruler. King Saul was the tallest guy, the most handsome guy. A great warrior. She had fallen in love with David when he was a great warrior. And here he is taking off his kingly items and worshiping like a peasant. She judged his worship. Do we ever do that? We ever see how people are worshiping and going, well, that's not how I would worship, and therefore they must not be doing it right. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone in his house whom appointed me, when he appointed me ruler of the Lord's people of Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes, but these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. In other words, 
I'm not doing this for you or for them. I'm doing it for Him. He's the King. I'll be even more humilified. That's the new word. (laughs) I'll be, God will make me be humble. I'll be more undignified. I will allow people's view of me to be lower so that I can give a greater view to the true King, the King of Israel. He's the one that chose me. And by the way, He chose me over your dad, Saul. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children until the day of his death. The result of this incident is that Michael is not able to have children. Now, we don't know if that's because God closed the room or because David closed the bedroom door. We don't know. But either way, she has no more kids. And that's significant because the house of Saul does not provide a successor to the throne of Israel. So it's a big story. What can we, how can we take this down and condense it? How can we apply it to our lives? Well, first thing, especially when we look at the first part of the story, is important that God is holy. We need to worship Him appropriately. David took the Lord's commands about the ark very lightly, and Uzzah directly disobeyed God and put his hand on the ark, resulting in his death and the blemishing of David's reputation. How we worship God matters. Obedience matters. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. When Jesus told us how to pray, he said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name is holy. You are set apart. I need to approach you as who you are, Lord of the universe. David was afraid after this happened. But fear of the Lord can be a good thing. It can be healthy. In Psalm 2, David wrote, Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate His rule with trembling. In Proverbs, Solomon wrote, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Um, about a month ago, two months ago, I don't remember, it all kind of comes together. We looked at the fear of the Lord in more detail. and We talked about how when we think of the fear of the Lord, we think about reverence, awe, respect. Seeing God as who He is, holy, just, and righteous. Understand that God hates sin and desires our obedience. Even fearing His judgment of sin and having that be a motivation in the same way that kids don't want to be disciplined by their parents when they, when they do sin. They are disciplined by their parents. Fearing God involves obeying Him and worshiping Him because God is holy. So we need to ascribe Him worth. Worship is just ascribing something worth when we worship God, we ascribe Him more worth than anything else. <clears throat> Two, we need to have a heart of worship. David danced. For us Baptists, it's in the Bible. David danced. My parents wouldn't let me go to a dance when I was in high school because they were worried that dancing led to other things. But that's a whole different kind of dancing. Number one. Number two, I told them, look, I'm a Baptist I'm scared to death to dance. I don't want to dance. I'm going to be horrible. You don't have to worry about any temptation because I'm going to be scared to death the entire time. And they finally let me go, and I was scared to death, and I didn't have a fun time at all until the dancing stopped because that is scary. Anyways, <clears throat> I still, when I go to weddings, I still get super nervous. I don't know why when I go to rap concerts with teenagers, I'll dance. I'll, I'll have But when I go to a wedding, I'm like, nope, unless it's the really, I can do this thing, the really slow song, standing I'll do that. That's I got that one. Once it goes beyond that, I'm out. It's like, see ya. Have a good night. Anyways, side note. (laughs) Worship 
David danced with all of his might. Worship can be expressed in many ways. The posture of our worship isn't as important as the posture of our heart. I had a really good elder uh, at, at First Baptist who, during worship music, always stood there like that. But I know he was worshiping in his heart. There's another guy at First Baptist, front row, just full out, boom, every time, just singing, swaying. And then we had another family that started doing it in the front row, and they were like that. I was like, this is just awesome. I just loved it. And other people go, well, they're making it about themselves. I'm like, no, they're not. <laughs> they're not thinking about you. You know why they stand in the front row? Because they don't want to see anybody else. Because they want to focus on worshiping God. That's actually why they told me they stood in the front row. Because they didn't want to think about what anybody else was thinking. They just wanted to worship God. When I was in youth group as a, <clears throat> as a kid, a teenager, my youth pastor explained to me, he said, you know why I lift my hands in worship? I said, no, I have no idea. I grew up in this church. I didn't know you were allowed to do anything other than this. I thought this was the required worship uh, mode. You put the hands in the pocket because if they start going other places, you're in trouble. You become Pentecostal immediately. And uh, <clears throat> so I said, why do you do that? And he said, because um, when kids, when, when their parents come home, and I experienced this when I had little kids, when I would come home, what is the first thing my kid did? Daddy. He said, so when I worship, I put my hands up and say, oh, Father, I, I need you. And I'm not saying you have to do that. That's why he did it. But my point is that, that our worship doesn't need to be this. It could be anything. But the other point is, if it's this, you can worship and have a heart of worship like this or this. God cares more about your heart. And David danced with all of his might. I've told you this story before about, about the winter retreat where I went to where there was a guy on a box drum and he was pounding and he had no rhythm and it drove me nuts the first session. And I walked away and I was so frustrated. I was like, that guy just needs to stop making a joyful noise to the Lord because it's killing my joy. Because it was a noise and it wasn't in rhythm. And I was really convicted by the Holy Spirit that, that Phil, it's about worshiping me. It's not about whether that guy has good rhythm. And I had some of the best worship I had ever had that weekend. And the guy kept hitting it off beat. But I was like, I'm tuning that out and I'm honing in on Christ. See, I think it's easy to be a Michael and look around and look at how others are worshiping and, and judging them by how they worship. But worship is about our heart. I, I'll, I'll be honest. I'll share a little bit about myself. So I love the hymns and I love contemporary music, but there's a period of like 1978 to 1999 that I just usually don't like those songs. In general, if there's a song that's there and I'm like 1993 and they're like, yeah, how do you know that? I'm like, because we sung that all the time in my church and I couldn't stand that song. And one of them, and I'll just share my heart to, to let you know that everybody struggles with this stuff, is As the Deer Pants for the Water. If that's your favorite song, I'm sorry. But, um, just We sung that so much in my church as a kid. It was like when they first created a contemporary band. Before that was a thing. And they put one and it was like every week as the deer. And I'm like, I'm sick of the deer. And then, um, and then I would have this visceral response when it came. And I was really convicted by the Holy Spirit one day. And, and, and it felt like I was going, what are you doing? I was like, what are you talking about? I just don't like that song. You know, that's from the Psalms. That's actually God's word directly. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. I'm picturing a deer running through. He's thirsty. He's looking for water and he doesn't know where it is. 
And he's longing for it. In the same way that the deer longs for it, David says, so my soul longs for thee. And I'm like, I don't like the tune. I had to really be convicted that a lot of times my heart and worship was affected by, do I like this song? Rather than taking the moment in the middle of a song to go, God, how can I center myself around these words to worship you, ascribe you worth, and, let, and know that you are holy and righteous and set apart, and I want to my singing and my heart and my attitudes of worship to reflect you. And so then we schedule the song, and I don't go... Ben, I don't like the tune. Don't schedule that. I have no idea when it's on the schedule next. But And now, next time you're seeing it, everybody's going to be thinking of me, and I shouldn't have used this specific song as an example. But you probably all have that song. You probably all have one of those. When we sing them, that you're like, I don't like that one. Check your heart. I know I have to check mine sometimes. And so Michael was like, that's not how it's done. And David said, it's not about you. It's not about you, it's about Him. Which leads me to my last application point. Know whose you are. Know why you worship. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me. Rather than your father or anyone from his house, when he appointed me the ruler of the Lord's people of Israel, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more indignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. Do you know whose you are? If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, you are His. Your life is not your own. You were adopted with a price. This week was a hard week for many of us, I'm sure. Uh, I just remember sitting, um, uh, watching the news coverage and just lamenting that this is the point that our country has gotten to right now. Um, The whole world was watching. Uh, In the middle of that, uh, there was a big sign that says, in the middle of the riot of everything going on, there was a big sign that says, Jesus saves. It's quite possible that guy was going there to preach the gospel to everybody that was there and had no part in the riots. It's quite possible he was participating in the riots. Uh, There's reports of someone chanting at that riot, uh, who loves Jesus? And we're like, woo! Who loves Trump? And even louder, woo! The world is watching, folks. They're watching what we do. We need to be really careful not to get sucked into identity politics where our neighbors, coworkers, friends, family know exactly what our political positions are, but they know nothing about what we think about Jesus. They know who we voted for, but they don't know who we serve. Where it seems like we're promoting an earthly king who fits our agenda rather than promoting the heavenly king. My identity is not in who I vote for. My identity is that I am a child of the one true king who was adopted with a price. God started us on a journey um, a number of years ago as we saw the tremendous need in our country for people to be adopted. Um, And God brought Kai to us, um, not quite an adoption because he has parents in Vietnam, but he's just become part of our family. We consider him part of our family. And now we're waiting for the state, not very patiently, to please certify us so we can go get a kid and bring him to our house. Um, and God might close those doors, and we might never adopt a child. We don't know, but we just 
There are so many kids. That need a home. And I have one. (laughs) But I have a room for that child or those children. And I look on the website and I go, I want you. (laughs) And I just picture our Heavenly Father. I said, Phil, I want you. I'm going to buy you with a price. You're going to be adopted as my child and get all the privileges of being in my family. Our Heavenly Father, how deep the Father's love for us. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turned His face away. As the wounds was scarred His only Son to pay the penalty for my price so that I could be adopted into His family, so that I could know I am His. I'm not my own. I am a child of the one true King. And my identity is found in Him because I know whose I am. I am His. And so I will make my life to proclaim His glory wherever I go. And I will bring a child into my house and I will tell him, I'm going to fail you, but He won't. Because He is good and His love endures forever. It's because of that, I am a child of the one true King. And that is going to be my identity. And no matter what else is going, no matter if our democracy fails and if everything falls apart around us and I find that I have to to quit my job and do this for free and I have to figure out what in the world to do, I am going to worship the God of the universe who came and redeemed me. Because I am His And He is my King, no matter who sits on the stinking seat in Washington, D.C. He is my King. And I'm going to proclaim Him because no turmoil can come that will take me away from Him. And you can be adopted too into that family. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, He's calling you today. He wants to bring you into His family. To make you part of His family. To spend eternal life with Him. And it won't be easy. I'm stubborn. I'm selfish. And God graciously, every day, puts up with my stubborn heart. Oftentimes I'm like Michael. I judge others when I shouldn't. Oftentimes I'm like David. I neglect the laws of God. I don't study them as diligently as I should, and I neglect something. But I'm adopted by the one true King, and that truth will forever change me. And I pray that it continually, daily changes you. Dear Heavenly Father, You're so good. Thank You. Thank You for adopting me into Your family. Lord, David knew that he was yours. It didn't matter what Michael thought. It didn't matter what anybody else thought. He was going to become more undignified. He was going to humble himself to make you glorified. Help me to live that way every single day. You are good, and your love endures forever. Help us to put our faith and trust in you. In your name we pray. Amen.